0: Well, according to the Guinness Book of World Records, Hetty Green might have been the biggest miser who ever lived because her father died when she was about 30 years old, and he left her with an inheritance that would be worth, in today's money, like $100 million. Now, in her day, it was unusual for women to manage the finances and to be involved with banking and with investments. Uh, But she received this inheritance and oriented her whole life around managing and growing this fund. So her focus on money drove this huge wedge between her and her husband and her two children. The family was scattered. And uh, she was so extreme in her desire to save and to grow the money she had inherited that she was known for eating cold oatmeal just so as not to use heat, not to waste anything hot, heated up and save on electricity. She was known for only washing the hem of her dress so as not to waste soap on the whole dress. When her son, Ned, broke his leg as a boy, she tried to have him treated in a free clinic for the poor. And when that didn't work, she treated him at home. And eventually, his leg was amputated. When she died, Hetty Green was worth the equivalent of some $4 billion in, by today's standards. But she was all alone and totally miserable. Today, we are continuing this series called Vital Signs. And in this series, we are looking at various areas of our lives, and we are asking, what, are, what would God say are the vital signs of health in each of these areas? Our world is going to tell us a whole set of vital signs today around finances, but what would God say are the vital signs around Finances. And in this series, we're just talking about how we are interconnected beings and God cares about more than just where you will go when you die. So we are asking in this series that God would sanctify us through and through so that our whole spirit, mind, soul, body would be presented as blameless before Christ. So we're asking God to sanctify us through and through. We're acknowledging God isn't just interested in my soul like where I will go when I die. He is actually interested in my work. And resurrection, his resurrection power is applicable to all these areas of my life. That Christ came to redeem and restore all things. Not just our spiritual lives. Christ came to redeem and restore all things, and that includes my physical body. We talked about that last week. Today, my financial life. Next week, my relationships. Uh, So let's just start out with this question. Anybody here ever struggled with their financial life? And let me just tell you what I mean by that. Have you ever maxed out a credit card? Have you ever wondered if you're saving enough for retirement? Have you ever had a hard time giving and letting go, holding your hand open with what you've been given? Have you ever found yourself in a fight or tension with your spouse about finances? Anybody here ever struggled with finances? This is pretty universal. I mean, most all of us at some point or another have had some wrestling around finances, and that looks different for different people. Today we're talking about financial health. What are the vital signs God would give us? Billy Graham once said this, if a person gets his attitude toward money straight, it will help straighten out almost every other area in his life. That's bold. Now, in this context, we're in Denver, we're in the United States of America, we need to acknowledge our our wealth in this room, all of us, compared to the rest of the world. If you make $25,000 a year, you're among the top 10% of the wealthiest people in the world. If you make $40,000 a year, you're among the top 3% globally. If you make 50000 a year, you are among the top 1%. If you make 100000 a year, you are among the top 0.66%. If you make 250000 a year, you're among the top 0.001%. Because there are 3 billion people living on less than $2 a day. Do you know, as Americans, we shell out more on trash bags than 90% of the world's 210 countries do for everything? We've got, we hear about it all the time debt, a lot of debt. In the United States, uh, we have $900 billion in credit debt. Did you know Sears, the company, they make more on credit payments than on purchases? 70% of people living paycheck to paycheck. Not only that, finances are a huge strain on relationships. Did you know 56% of people? who get divorced cite financial strain as the top reason. 56% of all divorces attributed to financial tension. 35% of all couples would say that finances are the biggest source of tension. 35% of couples would say their biggest tension, finances. Do you know what the second one is at 25%? Annoying habits, (laughs) like spending too much money. In a recent study done on couples, those who said that money was important to them, um, I'm sorry, those who said money was not that important to them, scored 10 to 15 percent higher on just um, meritable happiness than people who one or both were materialistic. So in every single category in this, this study, there's a pervasive pattern in the data that those if both couples are really materialistic really into money a lot of stress there it erodes communication poor conflict resolution and low responsiveness to each other huge strain on our relationships so what does jesus have to say about our financial lives in luke 12 jesus tells a parable where we see the danger of money is not money itself. It's the selfishness of greed. This is what the scriptures say in Luke chapter 12. Someone in the crowd said to him, Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, as Tim said, man... (laughs) Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Let's just say this last line together. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. That's what Jesus is teaching in this parable. In this little story, Jesus is just demonstrating the interconnectedness of our financial lives and our relational lives. Because in this little story, there are two brothers, and they are unable to live in harmony with each other. There is tension in their relationship. Now, we are not given a ton of details about these two brothers, but it is likely that the younger brother is coming to Jesus needing some help because he's in the lesser position in the household. But Jesus refuses to be the mediator that this young brother is asking him to be. He won't do it. Jesus won't do it. And instead, Jesus just like cuts through the circumstances to the heart of the matter. And it's almost as if Jesus points to the man And says to the crowd gathered, look what greed can do to you. Like here are two brothers fighting over money on their father's deathbed. When they should be supporting each other and caring for each other, when they should be loving each other and celebrating the life of their father, they are fighting over money. And in this little story, Jesus is just showing, he's revealing what we all know that our financial lives and our relational lives can be very connected. It's interesting when you just look at the priority of what is talked about through the whole of the Bible on different subjects, you can see how much the scriptures talk about giving, for example. So there are 272 verses in the scriptures, the Bible overall, about belief and faith. There are 365 instances where the phrase fear not is used. Pray, 371 references. Love, 741. How many times do we hear about give? 2,162 times. Just think about that. I mean, think about the heart of the gospel, the most well-known verse in the whole entire Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave. Like when God saw our need, he gave his very best gift. And we, as his followers, made in his likeness, made in his image, are meant to operate as giving, generous people as well. Now, Dave Ramsey, many of you know his name, some of you may not, he is the head of a program called Financial Peace University. And it's had a huge influence on churches all over the US, um, his teaching has had a huge influence on my life. A lot of how Tim and I have operated and set up our financial lives is thanks to his wonderful teaching. We teach his course here like twice a year. Uh, no, more like once a year, once a year, maybe once a year, whenever somebody's available to lead it. <laughs> but that course has done so much good for the world. Um, but sometimes I fear that we have made a false equivalence between Dave Ramsey's financial advice and the biblical attitude towards money. Because one time, if you were to boil down Dave Ramsey's big teaching, uh, get out of debt, and he helps do that through something called the snowball effect, super um, important concept, and then also establishing an emergency fund through saving, so get out of debt. Saving, um, great concepts. Certainly, we can find the proverbs talking about the you know the uh, the borrower is slave to the lender. Great reasons to do that. But think about this: one time, Jesus, he commended a widow for having a strong faith when she put her money in the temple offering. If that widow in Jesus' story had been in Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University class, she probably would not have been advised to pull out her money and put it in the temple treasury box. One time, Jesus spoke very highly of a woman, Mary, for taking perfume and pouring it out on Jesus' feet. Had Mary been in a financial peace university class, she probably would not have been advised to take an entire year's worth of wages and pour it out on Jesus' feet. See, while the Bible, when the Bible talks about money, which is frequent, two things are always more prominent than anything else. Number one, hold on to money loosely Number two: trust in God's provision no matter your financial state. Number one, hold on to money loosely. Number two, trust that God is providing for you, no matter your financial state. So for some of you, great wealth is the impediment here. For others of you, great debt is the impediment here, but either way, the scriptures would say we're to trust in God as our provider, not our great savings, not our strong budgeting, we're to trust in God as our provider. Tim Keller said, a lack of generosity to acknowledge that your assets are not really yours, but God's. A lack of generosity refuses to acknowledge that what you have is not really yours, it's God's. We're to give God control and trust him to provide. God is way more interested in your level of financial anxiety than the level of your bank account. Because anxiety is the opposite of trusting him as Provider. Augustine once said, God is always trying to give good things to us, but our hands are too full to receive them. Biblical financial health is not the same thing as being debt free and having a 401k. The truest indicator, the greatest vital sign for financial health that honors God is trusting Him as provider, and hands that are holding money loosely, hearts that are looking to give, as he gave. Winston Churchill once said, we make a living by what we get, we make a life by what we give. In the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, which, which some people call the Discourse on Discipleship, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus basically presents two ways of life. He's teaching his disciples about how to handle material possessions, and he teaches kind of two paths. Basically, Jesus says this, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. That's one path. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. And then summary statement, Jesus presents again those two paths. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Two paths. Treasures on earth, treasures in heaven. In Jesus' day, banks were practically non-existent. So people took their treasure, earthly treasure, and they normally kept their hard currency or their goods either in their home or hopefully some other safe place. But it was vulnerable. It was vulnerable to rust, to moths, to decay, to thieves. Of course, life required these goods and these hard currencies, but they were ultimately vulnerable. They were ultimately not trustworthy. Material possessions, financial wealth is not bad per se. It's just what we do with them and whether we depend on them for more than what they are. Remember what we said out loud together, life does not consist of. See, Jesus is talking about a life that is so much more life than the pursuit of the American dream. But there's a trust required to orient our lives around his kingdom priorities, his treasures in heaven. So we could just ask ourselves today, where are our treasures stored? Where are your treasures stored? Is it in your car? Or your cars? Is it in your homes or your real estate? Is it a 401k or other investments? You could say, you know, living more or less depends on these things, but life isn't to be sought in them. Robert Schiller, who is a uh, Yale economist, he won a Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, really smart guy, he poses this question, which I think is very interesting, he says, asks this, from 1890 to 2012, adjusted for inflation, how much did housing prices in the United States rise? Take a minute, and turn to whoever you're sitting by and take a wild guess. 1980, 19, or 1890 was 112 years just adjusted for inflation. How much did housing prices in the US? You want to know the answer? Zero. Zero percent, according to this Yale economist. Now, um, here's the reason I even bring that up. I'm like, really? Whoa, wow, OK, hmm, interesting. Um, Here's the only reason I bring this up. We are living in a really weird, super bizarre time, particularly here in Denver. And it is very tempting, myself included, it's very tempting for us to think, like, if I get a house, that's the golden ticket. If I get multiple houses like that's really the golden ticket. So like if you have real estate, this is the temptation, right? The temptation is to think like if you have real estate like who needs a budget? Cuz that's like the golden ticket. Like the market is rising, it's never going to but some of us remember 2008 when the market corrected, which is what markets do sometimes. See, we tend to think uh, we can just, you know, not have to worry about money if the housing prices are going up and we have any amount of investment in that. Just blow off the budget. Um, Here's the thing. There is no substitute for living in a healthy budget. There is no substitute for consistently spending less than you earn over a long period period of time. There's no substitute. That's why you hear stories about people who win $40 million in the Texas lottery, and a year later, they're bankrupt. And you go, how can that happen? That would never happen to me. Do you know what? If you can't manage a small amount, you can't manage a large amount. There is no golden ticket for consistently spending less than we earn over a long period of time there's no substitute there's no substitute for that Jesus says real life is found in seeking heavenly treasures now a caveat on all of these weeks we're giving lots of caveat here's the caveat today planning ahead and worry are not the same thing. So Jesus is talking in the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying, don't worry about tomorrow. Jesus never says, don't plan for tomorrow. Okay, planning ahead and worrying, not the same thing. Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow. Jesus doesn't say, do not plan for tomorrow. One time, Martin Luther said, God provides food for the birds, but he does not drop it into their beaks. It's responsible to plan. But Jesus invites us to have peace in the knowledge of his providence, his provision, so that, and here's the key, and here's the question you can ask yourself, when your plans fail, can you laugh? Or are you thrown into a spiral of worry? That's the indicator. When your plans, nothing wrong with plans, but when your plans fail, When they don't materialize for whatever reason, rather than being overcome with worry, can you laugh and know that ultimately your life is in his hands? So we hold on to our plans loosely. We're always ready to give up our plans if he asks us to. We're always willing to give up our plans for the sake of Of others so that God can be known in the world. R.C. Sproul once said, life's pressures invite us to worry incessantly about tomorrow, yet Christ says divine providence makes this anxiety foolish. Birds do not worry, they sing, and still they find food each day without sowing or reaping. Kingdom-seeking treasures in heaven has a lot to do with our putting others first. Our world would teach us, when it comes to money, to put self first. But God would teach us to do unto others as we would have them do unto us. In 1995, our nation was stunned by a woman named... uh, Osceola McCarty, she had donated $150,000 to an education fund, a scholarship fund at the University of Mississippi. Osceola had been forced to drop out of school in sixth grade to take care of her family. She started working, basically washing clothes in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And for 60 years, she was washing other people's clothes. Over that 60 years, she saved. And the world was stunned when then she took that savings, $150,000, and donated it so that others could have the education she never had. The world would ask us, what does a man own? Christ would ask, how does he use it? That's what Andrew Murray said. It's not that we don't plan. It's that plans shouldn't be ends in themselves that we place our trust in. The second part of the parable that Tim read a little earlier just shows planning ahead is not wrong in and of itself, but it is, according to Jesus, wrong when it's done selfishly and with no concern for others. So in this end of this parable, He told his disciples another story. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns, build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then, who will you get? Who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. This parable is revealing Jesus' very countercultural, vital sign around financial health and kingdom living. Because this farmer makes what looks to me like a good business decision. Seems like a good business decision. Like, rather than flood the market and get less for his crops or see them just go to waste, he hangs on to them for the future. Seems like a smart move. Like, maybe next year will be a down year, and then he can profit. But you got to place yourself in this day and age subsistence economy. Jesus is talking to peasant farmers. So a man who, number one, owns barns, and number two, has the ability to tear them down and build bigger ones, would be like the wealthiest man in the area. So Jesus' issue here is self-absorption. This farmer has made life all about himself. He is an excellent businessman. But he has used his skills in business to entrench himself further in power and wealth rather than use his skills as a conduit of life to spread among those he lives among. So here's a man who's in pursuit of this false sense of security in possessions rather than what he's designed for which is the riches of the kingdom of God, C.S. Lewis said this, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. Think about a ship on the ocean. A ship on the ocean needs water to sail. You need water to have a safe passage, to have a safe voyage. A ship needs the water. But if the water gets into the ship, it sinks. In a similar way, possessions, material possessions, are needed in life, and they make things more comfortable. But if the love of money gets inside the human soul, it will sink you. And it will sink your relationship. So Jesus' warnings are not around financial wealth is bad per se, but the trap of selfishness and greed that is so easy to fall into. So quickly as we close, three vital signs you can ask yourself around finances. These are from my son's room. He's six, and uh, we talk about three jars anytime he gets money. Give save, spend. Super simple. We just tell Russell, 10% goes into the give jar, and buddy, you can give it wherever you want. 10% goes in the save jar. And we learn to live, and we create a budget around 80%. When Tim and I first got married, that's what we set up. That's basically what we've been doing our whole entire married lives. My friend Keith, uh, you guys, I tried to get him to come today. He's leading a retreat. I would love, would have loved for you to hear from him. Here's what I want to tell you about my friend Keith. Spiritual power is flowing out of this guy's life. He left a career in real estate to join Young Life staff and he and his young family are fully supported missionaries. And when they moved from one Young Life region to another Young Life region, they found themselves in the sixth most expensive county in America to live in. And they're fully supported missionaries. And uh, they, he and his wife took a a map of the city, and they knew what high schools they were going to be working with with high school students, and they drew a circle on the map, and they started praying for a house in that area, but all of the houses in this zip code were way, way out of their reach for their new financial reality, and they're just praying, and they're just talking to God about this, and do you know someone connected to their ministry came and said, we will buy that house and basically you know, be the, do the loan for you at like, you know, less than 2% interest, something crazy. So they find themselves buying a house right in the center of that circle that they drew on the map. And then a couple months ago, Keith is your, your cart and all these high school kids around for different events with Young Life, and they just start praying for a 15-passenger van. And they're just praying, praying, asking God for this. They really could use it. Do you know someone connected to their ministry just wrote them a check for $58,000 to get this van for their ministry? I wish you could meet this guy because spiritual power is just flowing through his life right now as he trusts God to provide When you invite God into your financial life, and I just make no apology for encouraging you to do that, like when you invite God into your financial life, when you surrender your finances to God, you go on a spiritual adventure like no other. Tim and I had a couple come through the premarital class several years ago. She came in with no debt. He came in with like $50,000 worth of debt and he started to gain a vision for his life. And do you know, he had never, never tithed before, had never been a giver before. He had $50,000 of debt. He started giving, so now he's working on 90% of his total income. He started, he picked up a second job, he did a few things, but in two years, he paid off that debt. And do you know what his first inclination is to do? that new freedom, he he wants to help others. He wants to give. There is no spiritual adventure like the spiritual adventure of trusting God with our finances. Randy Elkhorn says this, the more you give, the more comes back to you because God is the greatest giver in the universe and he won't let you outgive him. Go ahead and try. See what happens. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I um, I thank you that you are the provider and that you so love the world that you gave. And Jesus, you know our hearts and you know how there can just be like... Um, all sorts of tight clinging in our hearts regarding our stuff. But right now this morning, we just like, once again, lay our hands down and acknowledge that it's not ours. You've made us stewards of what you've entrusted to our care. That we are not the owners here, you are. And we are just stewarding that which you have given us. So, God, for those who are so deep in the shame of significant debt and a spiral and a pattern of spending more than they earn, God, I pray for freedom, that your Holy Spirit would just move and give solid plans and inspiration and community and that there's no shame. And God, for those who have been entrusted with great wealth, God, I pray there too that their trust would be in you and not in their great savings, not in their great earnings. God, all of us need your redemption in this area. We need your salvation and sanctification to work through us and to work through our earning and our saving and our debt. And our spending. Would it be so? We pray all this in the name of the Father.